0: And adults, while they do, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. All summer and into the fall, we're making our way through the book of Ephesians. And so we're in chapter 3. And this morning and probably next week, we'll have to see. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. And uh, chapter 3 is one of the most glorious chapters in all of the Bible. It's one of those grand kind of spiritual peak. And uh, but before Paul kind of gets to the glory, the good stuff in verse 14, he takes a, a, a detour in, chapter, in verses one through 13. And uh, he kind of follows a rabbit trail. And so we're going to follow him down, him down this rabbit trail and it's going to take us to a to a good place. Because what he wants for us here is he wants to give us a strategy for how to deal with discouragement and deal with difficulties and not have your heart broken when your world is falling in on you. And so we're going to look at it this morning. Um, in the book, Good to Great, James Collins writes about a conversation he had with James Stockdale, who uh, was a decorated military officer, um, the distinction of being uh, uh, being in... Uh, a captive in a prisoner of war camp for longer than almost anyone else in the in the U.S. military and uh, in the interview he talks to him about his coping strategy for how he was able to endure. He was in the prisoner of war camp for seven years and four of those years he was in solitary confinement and uh, he asked him, you know, how did you survive? And he said, I, this is James Stockdale quoting, he says, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not, that not only I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn this experience into the, de- the defining event of my life, which in retrospect I would not trade. And then uh, Collins asked him, he said, well, uh, tell me about the people who didn't make it out. And he said, oh, that's easy. They were the optimists. They were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. Then they say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come, and Easter would go. We're going to be out by Thanksgiving. Then it would come, and it would go. It would be Christmas again. And he said, they would actually die of a broken heart. So their hearts would break. And in and, and Proverbs, he tells us, um, Solomon tells us, like, a, bo- a broken bone, a man can survive, but a broken spirit, a crushed spirit. No one can survive. And he would go on to say, this is a very important lesson because you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. See, the problem was placing their hope in a false hope. But he said, there, there has to be a stronger rock A stronger anchor that you put your hope in that's going to help you survive. And so he had a POW strategy. And what we actually get in this first part of Ephesians chapter 3 is Paul's POW strategy. Look in verse 1. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus... He's in prison. He's in a Roman prison waiting his trial and execution, and he's writing. And then in verse 13, where I really want to key in on, he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering because it's for your glory. So he wants wants to give them a strategy so they don't lose heart when they watch someone they love suffer. And now, I don't know if anyone in this room might ever be in an actual prisoner of war camp. But if you think about it, the boys who were in Nazi prisoner of war camps in the 40s and the boys were in Vietnamese prisoner of war camps in the 70s, they probably never thought they were gonna be in one when they were 14 either. But the, so I don't know if anyone here will ever be in an actual prisoner of war camp, but the reality is everyone in here can be plunged into a dungeon of darkness, a dungeon of despair, a dungeon of depression. That is something all of us can fall into and be held captive by. Just a couple, several months ago, some of you um, know one of our our oldest, who was five at the time, has been having difficulty sleeping and being afraid at night, and uh, I have a hard time sleeping too. So we have all these coping mechanisms and all these strategies. So like we have our audio books ready, we kind of have our Bible, we have all of our blankies and our stuffed animals, and we have all of the things we're going to need to help us uh, sleep well. And I was in the middle of the night, and and Maddie wasn't sleeping, and she was crying, and she was needing help, and. And uh, so I w- went into a room, and we started doing all of our strategies. Well, let's play our Winnie the Pooh audiobook and let's, let's, let's make sure we got our teddy, and let's remember our memory verse, that the Lord is with us, he will not forsake us. What do I have to fear? And I said, well, let's pray. And she was crying, and in the most heartbroken five-year-old anguish. She said, I don't wanna pray. I've asked Jesus over and over, and I'm still afraid. And I thought, God, please, not yet. Not yet. There'll be plenty of time in her life to have her heart broken, there'll be plenty of time to battle disappointment, discouragement. Not yet. It's only five, not yet help our sleep. And so it doesn't matter if you're 5, if you're 15, if you're 25, 55, 95. You'll have to learn a strategy to deal with life when the disappointments descend. And that's exactly what Paul's going to give us here. And in this passage um, from verse 1 to verse 13, it is one long kind of digression. So Paul starts, look in verse 1, For this reason... Now, he's about to tell them why he has to pray for them because chapter 2 is all about the glory of the church that's being built. It's bringing come together any otherwise. And he says, we have to pray for you. And then in verse 14, he picks it up for this reason. So he starts in verse 1, gets sidetracked, and then picks it back up in verse 14. So if any of you have a tendency to lose your train of thought pretty easily and go down rabbit trails, you're in good company. So that's what Paul does here. But it can be really helpful for us. And so... Uh, Just as we look at the structure, let's read through it, kind of get a sense of the structure. And then once we have that, I want us to let Paul be a model for us for how we can deal with discouragement and not lose our heart. So let's read through it and then look at the structure and then move that way. So for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation that I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, even though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is why according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you, do not lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. So what he wants for them is he wants them not to become prisoners of the moment. So they are living their life in the realm of just reactions. He wants them to be able to keep their heart even when, they, when life uh, turns d- uh, difficult on them and on those around them. And the way he sets it up is verse 2 through 6, he's going to highlight how God's grace has come to him and it's given him a message and a ministry. So his grace has come, and he's gotten this message and ministry. And then in verse 8 through 13, it's how God's grace then has empowered him to do that message and ministry. But now let's think for a second. like, What would they be in danger of being discouraged over? He doesn't want them to lose heart, but what might cause them to be so discouraged? And I think it's the reality that Paul was suffering in a Roman prison as he's writing this. And I think they would look and they would think, all right, this just doesn't, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, here he is, um, you know, here's this kind of great hero of the faith who's dedicated his whole life to building the church. Surely if Jesus loves anybody, he loves him. Why is his life going this way? And then even what he's written in chapter one, chapter one is this amazing explosion of glory. Where he's praise be to the heavenly Father, who's blessed us in the spiritual realms with every joyful glory, and they might be sitting there hearing that, thinking, well, uh, "Wait, a, like that sounds wonderful, but do you realize where you are? You're writing this in a stinky, dark Roman dungeon. How can you sing like this?" You know, if you think about an example, is like in Matthew 11, where John the Baptist. Remember, Jesus said of John the Baptist, there's none who have been born of a woman greater than him. That's a pretty high recommendation. And then remember, we saw when we went through the Gospel of John, he was the one who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one who says, He must increase, I must decrease. He's a remarkable person. And then at the very end of his life, he also was in, uh, not necessarily a Roman prison, but Herod's prison on death row. And then remember, in essence, he sends the message to Jesus in Matthew 11. Are you the one to come, or should we wait for another? Is this how it's supposed to play out? Like, I was your servant. I was proclaiming things for you. I prepared the way for you, and is this how it's supposed to end for me? And they would naturally struggle with this. It's just kind of the natural um, struggle when you ask, like, why do bad things happen to these people? Why are they happening? Heard this kind of this older black lady from the town I grew up in one time, she said, you know, I think Jesus had more friends if he treated the ones he had better. <laughs> That's the question. Why are these things happening to his, his servants? It's a classic problem. And I think if you're honest, you, we all realize, except for the most narcissistic people in the world, it's actually harder to watch someone you love go down the path of suffering than it is to go down yourself. I mean, think about it. Is there anything harder than watching someone you love, either by their own volition or by some other reason, um, have their life implode and you feel totally helpless to do anything? And I think that's the position many of them would have been in. And Paul, he wants to help them. So let's look at a couple things as we think, all right, what's his strategy here for helping them deal with discouragement so they don't get uh, discouraged. And I think one of the things Paul will do for us is he can be an example. He can be a model. He'll tell them, follow me as I'm following Christ. And I'll, on the back of your bulletin, I got a couple things. Uh, some things that Paul doesn't do. So it says, don't do this. And then some things he does as do this. So look at some of the things, just as you notice when we read through. Do you notice what Paul doesn't do? He doesn't throw a pity party. You know, part of our coping strategies of audiobooks at night is uh, the Winnie the Pooh books. So um, I've listened to the audio of the Winnie the Pooh books I don't know how many times now. And my favorite character is Eeyore, because Eeyore is so grumpy and mopey and uh, just a pity party just flows out from him. And, you know, that's not what Paul does here. He doesn't start saying, oh, woe is me. You guys have no idea how bad it is here. It smells terrible. The food's awful. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. (laughs) And y'all know what it's like. You've been around people who are just like a constant uh, drip of like pity party. And you know, I guess a pity party is only fun for one person. It's not a real party. It's not a party you actually want to attend. Because it's such a drain. And so that strategy uh, is not going to actually bring you life. And notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't complain either. I find it fascinating. You could read all of Paul's prison epistles and almost not know he was in prison. He says it there at the beginning, at least from his demeanor. He also wrote Philippians in prison, and it's called the letter of joy, because it's this explosion of joy. And so he doesn't complain about situation or circumstance. Next thing he doesn't do is he doesn't take the typical dad approach. And uh, what I mean by that is, you know how, and this is stereotypical, but it's, I mean, it's true. And so the typical dad approach is like, all right, well, that's the way things are. It's bad. You're in prison. You probably did something wrong. Let's deal with it. Let's get a plan. We're going to get our spiritual Navy SEALs to bust you out. Or what's our strategy to fix this problem? Quit, Quit whining. Don't bellyache. Just deal with it. I mean, when life gives you lemons you make lemonade and so just uh, like that stoic let's find a solution we're just going to get through it he doesn't do that but he also doesn't take the typical mom approach either and the typical mom approach is to say well everything will be okay don't worry honey everything will be fine in the morning the sun will come up in the morning. You know, this uh, false optimism. You can just look at the sunny side of life. Everything happens for a reason. You know, it was interesting. I was, somebody uh, had a conversation recently, and even now I'm just kind of processing out loud, which is a terrible thing to do in public. So I probably shouldn't. <laughs> but but you, know, you think like, you'll hear that cliche, like, oh, I believe everything just happens for a reason. I'm like, I believe that. And I believe that because I believe that the story of the earth is that this is God's good world that was ruined by sin, has been redeemed by the Son, and is being recreated by the Holy Spirit. I believe that there's a hole in the ground in Galilee that the Son of God once was in and is now no longer in, and He's risen to the right hand of the Father and is sitting on a throne and has given us a promise that history is not random and it's not spiraling out of control, and that He's going to work all things out for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. I believe that and that's a precious thing to believe but if you don't believe in those things how do you know how do you know everything happens for a reason or is this all going to work out in the end like if you actually believe we came from nothing and we're going to nothing and what got us from here to here is just total randomness and then what's going to get us from here to here is total randomness you actually have no reason to believe it's all going to work out in the end and see, this is a, a beautiful promise that we cling to because of who God is and who we are in light of that. So notice these things. This is not what Paul does. He doesn't throw a pity party. He doesn't start complaining. He doesn't just say, all right, just stoic, stiff upper lip. We're just going to keep calm and carry on. And then he doesn't have this foolish optimism that, well, one day it'll all just work out. He does something different. But I think our natural tendency is always to do one of those things. So kind of self-diagnose yourself. What's your natural tendency? Do you most naturally slip into the constant drip of complaining or throwing a pity party or just trying to grin and bear it? Or what's your tendency? And all those strategies ultimately, they might help you in the moment, but ultimately won't help. So look at what Paul does because he does three things that I think can be really helpful for us to deal with discouragement. So how does he do it? How does he keep his joy and confidence even in the midst of the difficulty? And how does he, how can he help us get in a position where we can handle these things and hold on uh, to our hope? Three things I think he does is first you got to think, you got to thank, and then sink. And you, if you've been around here long enough, you know how long I spent yesterday trying to get that third one to, I mean (laughs) funk just didn't work right. And then I thought about drink, but I thought that might give the wrong connotation as you'll see in a minute. But well you gotta think, you gotta think, and then you gotta sink. But notice the first thing that he does is he's going to filter everything that happens to him and how he understands his life and his world through his theology. And uh, I think next week we're going to unpack some of these things because this actually, it's interesting. The whole goal of this section is to keep you from being discouraged and then it's one of the most theologically dense and rich passages in all of Ephesians. It's remarkable. And one strategy when you're reading Paul, if you're ever reading him and you start getting kind of confused and like, what is he talking about? Talking about circumcised and uncircumcised and mysteries and this, this, what I'm reading is a mystery. Look for, because he often will sum up what he's trying to say. And then you think, all right, that was what he was wanting to do. Now let me backtrack and figure out how he, he got there. So 13 is the summary. I'm telling you this so you don't lose heart. So the goal of him telling all of those things is that they stay encouraged. And he's filtering everything he's doing through a theological lens, through who Christ is, through this mystery that has been revealed to him. Notice it's the mystery, it's of Christ. All this has come to him in Christ. And one of our core convictions here as we transition and try and establish ourselves as a new entity and a new church, I've really been thinking about how one of just the absolute core convictions has to be Because every faithful church wants to be biblical. We all want that. But there has to be something more where we try and integrate everything that, all of our life through the theology we believe. This is full-on theological integration. His goal, the goal of theology is to think God's thoughts after him and then see his world the way he does. And he's viewing all of his life through that lens. And now he's thinking his way to encouragement. Notice he uses that phrase over and over, mystery, mystery, mystery. I think it's seven times in this section he uses this mystery. And you think mystery is not like, when we think of mystery, we think of something uh, that is unknown that we have to discover. But did you notice when he talks about the mystery, he said, it was revealed to me. So mystery in this sense is not something that's unknown that you discover, it's something that you don't know, that you can't discover, that has to be revealed to you. And once that revelation happens, you're never the same. You then can't view life or your world the same after that revelation happens. And I had a, I'm about to, to unleash a revelation on some of you that might depress you and discourage you which is the last thing I want to do, but this happened to me this past month, Um, and I I brought a little prop. Does anybody know what this is in my pocket? Can anybody see? Honey mustard. This is PDQ honey mustard. This is liquid gold. (laughs) Now, I'm not a chicken man. I don't really like chicken. I like beef, and uh, I'm not really a mustard man. I'm a mayonnaise kind of guy, but I love... PDQ chicken fingers and this honey mustard. And I think, you know, at some time, Cynthia said, I'm not allowed to do this, but what I'd like to do is just go through the drive-thru and say, I'll just have the honey mustard, please. I'll just drink it and that will be my meal. But the proper ratio is one carton per chicken finger. So that gets your right taste. So you get five chicken fingers, you get one carton. And I had this terrible moment of insanity, which I wouldn't recommend to anybody. But about a month ago, um, we started to so say, We're going to have to start tracking our calories. So we had the My Fitness Pal app and started plugging in everything you eat to track your calories. And I had PDQ, it was a terrible idea. We did it for one day. I did it for one day. <laughs> and went to PDQ and just had the five chicken fingers and then the zucchini fries, which are equally as amazing. And then you plug those bad boys into My Fitness Pal, and it is the most depressing discouraging. I just did the chicken nuggets and the zucchini fries and, and thought oh, I'm so discouraged right now. And then Cynthia reminded me, well don't forget the honey mustard. I'm like, what's the biggest honey mustard? That cannot be, that does not count. These, these calories don't count. If it's not physical, if you don't have to chew it, it doesn't count as calories. <laughs> I said, nope, you got to put the honey mustard in there and you had four of those bad boys. <laughs> Do you have any idea how much this little pack is? <laughs> 250 calories. And so right there, when I popped it in, that's 1,000 calories of mustard. Half my daily intake is in mustard. And once that revelation dawns on me, now PDQ's ruined. For it. I, I don't know what to do. because so I still want to eat it, but now I eat it in the full knowledge that this is uh, 250 calories. And so some revelations come on you, and once you realize them, you can't ever be the same. You can't do life the same. <laughs> And in a much more important way. (laughs) That's what happened to Paul when the reality of who Christ is came dawning in on him. He was never the same. He couldn't view himself the same. He couldn't view his world the same. Everything uh, had changed. And so he had to think his way to these realities. He had to work itself out. Notice when he says, I'm a prisoner now of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Christ's prisoner. I'm not Nero's prisoner. I'm Christ's. And his problem, uh, in essence, is that he was ignorant of the way Christ was going to redeem and renew and restore all things. And now the reality had dawned on him and he'd never be the same. The things that once discouraged him couldn't discourage him any longer. Because he talks about in chapter 1 that this mystery is how Christ is going to reunite and return all things. He's going to reunite it. And we know one of the fundamental experiences of life is just breakdown. Life breaks down. Societies break down. Relationships break down. Bodies, they break down. And the mystery that's been revealed is how Christ is putting it all back together again. How he's bringing healing and he's going to fix it. So you've got to think your way to this. But notice you also have to think your way to this. It's fascinating uh, multiple times in verse 2, in verse 7, in verse 8. It's grace was given to me. Given to me. Given to me. His grace was a gift. It's given to me. See, he is so aware of those gifts. Even in the midst of the difficulties, he's aware everything I have is gift. Just like he would tell the Corinthians, who were, they were young, they were successful, they were um, intelligent, they were savvy, and he reminds them, what do you have that you did not receive? And The answer is nothing. It's all a gift. And so even in the midst of the dungeon, he can spot the evidences of mercy. It's God's grace was given to me, given to me. And how how aware are you of those gifts that are all around you? That's going to help cure you. You have to think your way, but you also have to think your way uh, into the light. And then the last thing you have to do is you have to sink your way. And what I mean here is you have to sink your thoughts and your life up with his promises, his purpose, his plan. Do you notice how he says that this, in verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus in our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And so all of this is happening. It's not random. He's not caught by surprise. He's sinking his life up with God's purposes. And what I find so interesting is now for Paul, his values and priorities have become one with God's values and God's priorities. They've been completely reworked. And just think about your own life or people you know, when, when the darkness of depression descends and we get locked into the, into, the, into the dungeon of depression. And it's not like the physiological kind, that's just kind of a, maybe chemical imbalances. But when it's more of the relational, emotional, spiritual, um, physical um, aspect, what often is driving that? You think about the times of discouragement. So often it's, it's there's something that you desired, some type of like goal that's being blocked. And then you come to re- the realization that it's probably never going to, never going to fix, never going to be fixed. You'll never achieve it. And it often is in the arena of um, loving relationships or kind of meaning and purpose. work So something you kind of pursued in this arena and you realize you might never achieve it or you do achieve it and it didn't offer the promise you thought or in relationships that they fall apart and break down and they don't seem um, to meet your needs in all the ways you had hoped. And then that causes the discouragement. But what's so fascinating here is notice there's this kind of deep level longing that gets blocked and that's what causes us to enter into the dungeon of depression but notice what Paul says because look in verse 8 it says though I'm the least of all the saints this grace was given which actually is another I didn't put this in that outline. that's another really helpful strategy for dealing with discouragement you know you often we wouldn't be so offended by people if we didn't have such a high opinion of ourselves And what Paul, he says, to the the least of all the saints. So he's very aware of his own brokenness. But He says, this grace was given to me to preach. Paul's whole life was dedicated to one pursuit. Preach the gospel and take it to the ends of the earth. He wanted to go, that's why he wrote the letter of Romans. I'm going, I'm taking the gospel to Spain. I'm going to plant churches all the way, and I'm going to the ends of the earth. I'm going to preach all the way to Spain. We're taking the gospel. But you know what he never did? He never got there. His great life's ambitions, he failed at. And the reason why is because he's stuck in a Roman prison right now. And just think about how you'd be if you had one grand life ambition, and then you're in the place that's causing to keep you from that. How discouraged would you be? But he's not. And the answer is why, and I think the reason why is because there's something for him that's more important than his ministry. There's something in him that's more important. He, uh, he had lost total control of his life, and that was okay. It was Okay. And so what does this mean for us? A couple of things I just want you to think about as we wrap up and think, what does this mean? How can These are the things that we need to do. We need to think through these things theologically. We need to thank the Lord for all the gifts that we do have. We need to sync up our hearts to be in sync with his, his purpose, his plan, his promises, those things. But now what does this mean for us? And a couple things I just want you to think about. One of the things it means is for us, it means there's no suffering that's meaningless. None of it's meaningless. You know, in one sense, you walk the way of cosmic testimony. You know, it's interesting to think about. It's a funny experience. I won't say who, but somebody recently... I'm the person that's driving down the road that probably drives half of you crazy and causes you to lose some of the fruits of the Spirit we've been working on with the kids. So I'm just like, you know, in a la-la land, just kind of putzing along. And uh, somebody um, was driving and was kind of a little aggressive, but I I didn't really notice. And then we got to where we're going, and the guy like, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't know it was you. I didn't know it was the preacher behind me. I would have been driving like that if I would have known the preacher was behind you. I was like, well, don't worry. I wasn't paying attention anyway. And, uh, <laughs> and so you think, how I, you all know, like when you see the police car, you drive different. So you know they're watching. Somebody's watching. But look at verse 10. It's this remarkable thing that I think we might need to come back to next week because it's such a... It's the purpose of the church. He said, God is creating and renewing all things. He's building this church so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, God might put on display his wisdom to be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. See, he's using the lives of believers to put on display to the heavenly realms his wisdom, his glory, and his power. And that means the shocking thing is they're watching. They're watching. And your life is reflecting something about who he is and what he's done. His wisdom, his glory. And what that can do is it can help um, empower even those darkest moments where you think no one's there or no one's watching. This truth uh, brought life to Joni Erickson Tata when she was wrestling with how to deal with her own accident. So part of her story is she was 18, uh, dove into a lake, uh, hit, hit her head and became paralyzed from the neck down, been in wheelchair ever since. And she was in, in the hospital for months trying to recover, and uh, she tells a story in her book of uh, Denise Walters who uh, at that time, you, you wouldn't have your own little room. You'd be on a hospital ward, so you'd be on the floor. So there was a number of people all on the, on the same floor with her. And Denise was one of the girls uh, with her. And her, you know, her story is, she's a 17-year-old cheerleader. I uh, was bounding up the steps one day at her high school and felt her knee kind of wobble and go out. She went home, took a nap, woke up from the nap, and was paralyzed from waist down. A um, couple days later, she was paralyzed from her neck down a couple of weeks later she was blind she had a rare form of rapid progression multiple sclerosis and um, she was in the hospital bed next to Joni and she just kind of watched her slowly deteriorate and it not only did her accident shake her faith watching her next to her shook her faith and she just wrestled like why why is this happening it's so meaningless it's so senseless and she said you know nobody would come to visit her she seemed all alone but every night her mother would come in and read the bible to her and they would pray and uh, she said she just had this quiet, calm, and dignity, but it seemed so pointless. And then one day she was telling that story, Joni Tata, Erickson Tata, after um, Denise had died, and she was telling that story, and her friend reminded her of Ephesians 3.10. And she said it wasn't pointless. There wasn't no one there watching. The heavenlies, the angels, the prince of they were watching. And I bet they marveled at the way with dignity and grace she uh, ended her life. And then Joni said that she then went and found her mom and wrote her a note. And the note said, as I am sure that the angels and demons stood amazed as they watched the uncomplaining patience of your daughter who were watching. And so it means that it's not meaningless. There, there, there's nothing here This meaningless. is forming in us something. But what it ultimately means here is that no suffering ultimately is ultimate. Even the worst suffering we can experience now because of Christ and his cross has been neutered of all of its power. The fangs of death, the sting of death have been removed. Its its tyranny is gone. See, what Paul knows is he knows they don't need to lose heart. That's an important phrase, not be discouraged, don't lose heart. Because he knows what Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart is. And if your treasure is in a place that's unshakable, then you will never lose your heart. But if you put your treasure on things you can lose, you will always be in danger of losing your heart. So if your treasure is in a place that the volatility of the stock market uh, can, you can lose, then you'll always have a ground note of anxiety in your life. If your treasure is in a place um, that a couple cuts across your face you can lose and your beauty can be gone, you'll always be anxious. If your treasure is somewhere that you can lose, you'll always be nervous about losing it. But he doesn't want them to lose heart because he wants them to anchor their treasure in a place that they can never lose. Receive something that can never be shaken or never come down. Something that even death itself can't Touch, Because he knows, look what he says in 14. He says, we have boldness because we have access with confidence to the Father. So he knows he has a treasure, which is access to the Father that was purchased for him by Christ. And it's something he can never lose. He knows that on the cross, Jesus lost the presence of the Father so that Paul could gain it and never lose it. He knows that on the cross, Jesus was ultimately bound so that now for Paul, no matter where he is, he will be free. He knows that on the cross, Christ's heart was broken, so Paul's never would have to be. And so now he has a treasure that he can't lose. That's the only way to be free. And what we need is a POW strategy that can take those realities and work it so down deep into our heart they become unbreakable. You know, it's not the time now, but one of the reasons we want to give ourselves to our children's ministry and want to love and preach because I know that that same five-year-old with tender, tearful cry, that won't be the last time she cries like that. You know, there'll be another time. And she might be 25. And she might cry out and be tempted To give up and not pray and say, you know, I have asked him, but I am still jobless. I am still childless. I have asked him, but I am still, um, I'm still single. I'm still suffering. She might cry out. And in that moment, what she's going to need to know, she's going to need to be able to think and say, wait a second. I, I know that there was only one beloved child who cried out to the father in the garden, and said, let this cup pass from me. And God didn't hear him so that he can hear me. And I know that he he was abandoned on the cross, so I'll never be abandoned. And so now I may feel his, um, I feel his silence. But what I know is his silence is not his absence because he is here with me. Because at some point, the tender tears are going to go, and we're going to have to say, how can we survive the discouragement? And the way it has to happen then is you've got to think through the things you know about what he's done. You've got to thank him for his gifts, and you've got to sink your heart up with uh, his purpose and his plans. So let's take a few moments, and let's just pray and ask the Lord to help these things become realities into our life. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth, its power. We thank you for it as a stabilizing influence that if we can work down deep into our minds and our hearts, it can, um, it can be a rock that we can build our life on, and no matter what wind, rain, storm comes, we'll survive we'll be able to make it. So we want to pause right now and I pray for anyone who's come into this room right now and they're experiencing the darkness. They're in the dungeon and they don't see or know how to get out. And we pray for the the power of your spirit to shine a gospel light of promise that'll break through the darkness. We ask that you would help them to Think clearly about who you are and what you've done, and ask them to give them eyes to see all the things that they should be thankful for, and help them to sync up their life with um, your plan and your purposes. So we pray for them now, and Lord, I pray for anyone who's coming to this room this morning, and their hearts are breaking, but it's not for their own life; it's for an another, it's for someone that they love dearly, and they're watching, um, watching them descend either into darkness or through difficulties, and they feel so helpless. Um, to do anything about it. I pray that you would encourage them, strengthen them, give them the hope and the confidence they need. Help, verse 12, to become a living reality in their life where they know that through him we have boldness, we have access to the Father and we can come with confidence to lay down these requests. So we pray that you would uh, protect them and be with them. And pray for all of us as a church, collectively, and as individuals. You will help us be marked by those things. You will help us to think clearly and think well about who you are. You'll make us a thankful people. Lord, forgive us for being so quick to forget your mercies and your blessings and so long to remember slights or frustrations or difficulties. Help us to be thankful. And then help us. Our goal as a church and our goal as people, we want to be good and faithful servants and sync up all we do with your will and your ways. So we ask that you would help us now. In all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.